I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Andrew Birch, the co-founder of Sungevity. Sungevity was an early success story in residential solar, but after 10 years in business, it went bankrupt in 2017. In this interview, recorded five months after the company's collapse, Birchie joined me on stage to talk about what happened. His story tells us a lot about the turbulence that defines the solar industry. Personally, Sungevity played an important role in helping me start Powerhouse, and I'm forever grateful for Birchie's early support. It's not easy coming on a show and talking about a failure, and I really admire his willingness to do so. This conversation was recorded live in 2017 at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California. Our friend, venture investor Shale Khan, sets the scene. So, residential solar is not new. Homeowners have been installing it in the U.S. for well over 30 years. And in fact, some of the original solar rooftops that were installed over 30 years ago are still operating just fine today. But residential solar was a niche market for most of its history. The upfront capital expense could run a homeowner $30,000 or more. The payback period could be 10, 15, even 20 years, and relatively few people would adopt as a result. That all began to change about a decade ago. Along with two co-founders, Andrew Birch, who's sitting right behind me, founded Sungevity in 2007 to take on what had been basically a dormant residential solar sector. At that time, when Sungevity was founded, there were less than 50,000 homes in the U.S. that had solar on their roof. Fast forward to today. More than 1.5 million homes have solar on their roof today. We're installing more residential solar each quarter in the U.S. now than we had in the entire history prior to 2007. And Sungevity, along with its two probably largest competitors, Sunrun and Solar City, was a big part of making that happen. Sungevity spent years in the top five of all residential solar companies in the U.S. And from my perspective as an outsider, let me offer you a few things that I think made Sungevity unique amongst its peers. First, Sungevity was a software innovator. Um, it was the first major solar company to do remote system design. So no longer did you need multiple truck rolls out to a customer's house in order to provide an accurate bid. That was an innovation that came largely from Sungevity. Second, Sungevity really knew customer acquisition. Its consumer branding, its marketing efforts, especially relative to its size, were unparalleled amongst its peers. Third, Sungevity went international which very few others did, launching residential solar businesses in the Netherlands and in Australia. And finally, its employees really loved the company. I've known many people who worked at Sungevity, many people who worked at all major residential solar companies, and I've known no other company besides Sungevity to produce such reverence amongst its team. So in one sense, uh, Andrew's story and the story of Sungevity is, is a success story. But of course, that's not how it ends, because in March of this year, Sungevity filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and hundreds of employees lost their jobs, um, some with relatively little notice. It was quite brutal for many of them. So what happened? I'm sure Andrew will offer all the details and obviously has far greater context than I do, but let me provide a little bit of market context around what happened to Sungevity. So after Sungevity's founding in 2007, it took a few years for residential solar to really take off in the U.S., but when it did, it really boomed fast. In 2012, which is what I would say is sort of the first year of this recent boom in residential solar, the market grew 62%. In 2013, it grew 61%. In 2014, it grew 59%. In 2015, it grew another 71%. But then the music slowed down and it kind of stopped. And growth in 2016 fell to 20% annually, which is still pretty respectable. But then this year, maybe the first down year for residential solar in recent history. 
Some companies have survived and some business models have fared better than others have, but Sungevity was one among a group of the top tier residential solar companies that went bankrupt, shut down, or have been sold for pieces over the past couple of years. This includes other names like Varengo Solar, One Roof Energy, Next Step Living, NRG Home Solar, even Solar City, the biggest residential solar company in the country, now subsumed within Tesla, is dramatically smaller than it was two years ago. To me, Sungevity's story offers a window into one of the biggest challenges in clean tech that is faced not just in residential solar, but in the sector more broadly. Even with a growing market, which we still have in most of these areas, even with economics increasingly on your side, and with world-class technology, profit is hard to find and harder to sustain. Clean tech companies eventually need to crack that code if they're truly going to disrupt electricity and sustain their growth. So I personally am really eager to hear Andrew's story and Sungevity's story, the good, the bad, the lessons we can all learn. And I also just want to say that I really applaud and appreciate Andrew's willingness to tell that story. Not everyone would, and everyone should. So with that, I will hand the mic over to the eminently capable Emily Kirsch to interview Andrew Birch. Thank you. All right. Um, <clears throat> I'm Emily Kirsch, co-founder and CEO here at Powerhouse. And the stories of clean energy luminaries are rarely told. And that's why Powerhouse and GTM teamed up to bring you those stories in the form of this monthly event series here at Powerhouse, but also in the form of the podcast that we launched with GTM called What It Takes. And this month, we're featuring the co-founder and former CEO of Sungevity, Andrew Birch, also known as Birchy. So Birchy, thanks so much for being with us here tonight. Thank you. Why don't you start by telling us where did you grow up and what was it like where you grew up? So this is probably the easiest question of the evening. That's right. Um, <laughs> so I was uh, born in Scotland, which I think, if it's not the least sunny country on planet Earth, it's certainly a candidate. Um, and I think since then I've been migrating to sunnier and sunnier climes as part of my clean energy, my personal clean energy strategy. Um, and how was it growing up? It was cloudy. It was kind of a, you know, it's an interesting place. I was a bit of a physics geek, um, I find an old school manual from when I was, you know, seven, I think seven years old with a little, my first sort of semblance of a drawing of a PV cell, the photoelectric effect. And so something stuck way back then. But How old were you when you found that drawing? There was like a seven, I had a little uh, kid's physics book um, that I used to scribble on. I, I, again, I didn't have any friends um, when I was young. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, used to, I was one of those kids who just stared up at the stars and th thought a lot about what made the world work, and and that seemed to be me for the next kind of ten years until I, until uh, I left left home. I also heard your maybe not so friends called you Captain Planet. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there was a at school. Yeah, I sort of had a few various uh, nicknames. Some of them uh, probably not uh, appropriate for. For an event such you as this, you can say whatever you want on no, this podcast. No, let's, let's let's not let's not. Um, uh, but yeah, Captain Planet was the more sort of relevant of the nicknames that I had uh, way back then. Gotcha. And tell us about the years leading up to Sungevity. Yes, it, uh, I'll try and keep it relevant. But um, there was a lot. I'm sure all of the entrepreneurs in the room and everyone in, in clean tech, we all have our you know journey that brings us to these these points. And so for me, it was I was kind of Captain Planet into physics. Uh, I decided to do investment banking, but with an environmental sort of bent um, and socially responsible investment, as it was called back then in the early '90s. Um, I met some of the early clean tech companies, Astro Power, based out of Delaware. Um, I remember the sort of epiphany of seeing their presentation of the falling cost of solar, which, you know, panels back then were, you know, $13, $14 a watt. Um, and, you know, when we started Sungevity, panels were $4 a watt. And here we, now, we are now in the, you know, $0.30, $0.40 cents a watt kind of zone. So, you know, it was, I felt kind of privileged to be exposed to some of those numbers you know, in the late 90s. And as a sort of physicist and banker, 
Um, uh, if you excuse me, you know, if we can forgive people for being bankers for for a moment, um, it was sort of that combination that got me excited. The math and the environmental side. This is something I wanted to do with my life. So, I quit banking. I had my first um, of many midlife crises. Um, age, I think, twenty five. And um, left, you know, had the, the sort of, you know, epiphany moment, upset my parents and saying I'm going to give up this well-paid, secure job, packed everything in a bag, went to Australia and um, uh, did a postgraduate degree in photovoltaics at the University of New South Wales, which sort of taught me the science of, and physics of solar. I did a thesis in the economics of solar and then wanted to start a company. And so try and be dangerous and useful and have an impact and hopefully positive impact in the world using what I'd learned to to apply to the solar industry. And at the time, the university textbooks to the point um, GTM uh, made earlier that, you know, this industry was so small for so long. My UNSW uh, textbook had the, the insane rapid growth of the industry from 15 megawatts to 75 megawatts of global annual production uh, through, you know, through, I think it was 1999 or something. And so I was one of the early folk in, in UNSW doing that, that research and on the economic side and ended up doing a, a not going into startup, did a, a spell at BP Solar as business development manager. And then to finally get to Sungevity, I was in the office one afternoon when Google Earth switched on. And I mean, maybe it's the same for everyone or not, but that moment when you're in the office and everyone stops working, kind of screaming at each other, going, oh my God, I can see my mom's house. <laughs> so I just happened to be reading a book, How Dell Does It by Michael Dell. When we discovered Google Earth and Google Earth kind of became a reality and realized that actually some of the problems I was trying to solve for BP and residential solar could be solved by the combination of standardized, simple consumer-facing design like Dell did PCs to, to make that industry thrive um, with the technology and software that just became available with satellite imagery. So we had this, you know, had this breakthrough idea, exciting idea of selling solar online and designing systems using satellite and aerial imagery to make it easy for customers to understand how much they could save with solar. That's kind of the genesis. And did you try to push that idea at BP? Where was BP at that point in the solar space? And were they encouraging of the kind of work you were doing? They were encouraging, but just uh, culturally and structurally, they weren't able to execute a plan. They, they had been for 30 years, either one or two in solar. BP Solar was like a long-time manufacturer. They had, at the time, what was one of the biggest manufacturing bases, you know, 35 megawatts, not a lot today. Um, but they were one of the leaders for many years. But they, um, the strategy changed at the top. You know, Lord Bryan was kicked out and the $15 billion budget we had to play with in renewable energy vanished. And uh, that was the end of that. So it was kind of timely that we had an idea, no budget for me to go elsewhere and start a company. So tell us about that. You you left BP. You had this idea. Who did you go to? How did you actually start Sungevity? So I we had the, so the initial idea was formed, and I was going to start a company, come to America to raise the capital because this is where the software is and the the infrastructure and the community is to start to start software driven businesses. Um, and I was just telling Danny uh, Kennedy, my you know very good friend and co-founder, um, about the concept, and I was going to move, and I was actually getting married that year as well, just to make life really easy. <laughs> um, and he said, "No way, I'm going to America as well." He was running Greenpeace in, uh, in the Asia Pacific region, and said, "I'm heading there too." I was like, all right, what's your business model? And he's like, well, okay, what's your business model? And <laughs> my in-laws were in town for, in Australia, so that was another good reason to leave the country. And um, I, I'm hoping they're not going to listen to this podcast. Um, so I jumped on a plane to meet Alec, who Danny was starting a company with. And Danny and Alec had met as activists. I think Danny was, uh, and Alec, it was Alec that was wearing the penguin suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside the United Nations, United Nations building when Danny and Alec met. Uh, so we had this sort of weird combination of a Scottish banker, an Australian entrepreneur, and an American act, uh, America, sorry, an Australian activist and an American entrepreneur who started Sungevity Up. How did you know Danny? Um, so it's kind of a funny story. He uh, plagiarized um, some of my work. <laughs> uh, I, knowingly, uh, so I'd written a... 
I'd done an analysis uh, of subsidies that were being subverted from the Australian taxpayer's pocket into these private energy companies, coal companies. They basically accelerated the depreciation of the assets when they privatized them. Boring stuff that banker geeks like me get excited about. Um, wrote it up to show how many hundreds of millions of dollars had been transferred from the public purse to these companies. And that artificially lowered the cost of electricity in Australia, which made it hard for solar to compete. Um, BP weren't very keen on me publishing that at the time. Shocking. Um, for various reasons. And so uh, somehow I think I must have left a piece of paper on a desk or something and Danny found it and he published it. You left it, quote unquote, accidentally? Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you team up, you start Sanjevity. Where, where was this idea actually crystallized? Uh, were you paying yourselves when you first got started? Uh, no. So we, so we, Danny and I met in Australia, but the idea was to come here and start it. So we, we, I came over for the weekend, met Alec, great guy. The three of us just got on so well, house on fire, all had the same vision for where the industry needed to go and the importance of creating customer facing solutions. So you know, there's a lot of people, I think, in this room who have focused on that today, which is exactly right in my mind. Back in the day, it was all about how do we make the, you know, the wafers 15% more efficient. And there was nothing downstream. There was no, no innovation about how to take what was ultimately always going to be a commoditized upstream and take it downstream in a way that made it easy for customers to access solar. So we all had that vision. Uh, and so we decided to start the company up together and so I got married. My wife and I came here. We, Danny and his wife and two kids had just moved here and we started the company up and we had, uh, you know, a couple of people start straight away, two or three folk who were really, I'd say, as much co-founders as the rest of us. And a few of them are in the room, actually, I can see. Um, and that was it. And from there, we started this, this, this great, you know, great culture and great, great company. Where did the money come from? Uh, so we had seed capital from friends and family. So we were pretty lucky um, to be able to seed it um, fairly quickly through some friends. And funnily enough, my my first day on the job in the States was actually a meeting with a, a, a seed investor who was quite famous that I just didn't happen to recognize her. Um, she was an actress. Are you able to say who? C. Blanchett. Australian, Got she's it. an American Australian Got actress. It. She's been in a lot of movies. Nice. <laughs> we're, we're very close. Um, but yeah, it was. We had some, you know, really keen, mission-driven early seed investors that made it possible, which was great. And what did that seed capital allow you to do? So the first thing was to. It was really software ideas, as as per the introduction. We we had an idea to design systems without going to the home. So if you think about the market at the time, and this is maybe relevant for some of the problems everyone's trying to solve in this room now in this marketplace, kind of similar, and it was very fragmented. The solutions were not customer friendly. You know, a, a consumer would, if they had any semblance of interest in solar, ring up a local contractor who would drive to the home some number of weeks later, climb up on the roof, measure it, generate a quote, which had all sorts of technical jargon that didn't make any sense, like a Keiko, this inverter and a, you know, a Ningbo XYZ panel and watts and kilowatt hours and, you know, head, head just blows up. So our idea was to build software. You simply put your address into the website and we design a system and it's system ABCD and they cost this much and they'll save you this much money and this much carbon and you can click here and go solar. So the, the money basically allowed us to build the software to do that for the first time. And what led you to believe that people would make these massive purchases online when no one had done that before? Yeah, that, that was one of the, the leaps of faith. Um, there were a few things that we had to believe we could achieve that hadn't been done before. And that was really where the highest risk early, you know, capital and support really made, you know, what it in, in enabled and it was it was buying online which had never been done before big transaction before financing came in thirty forty thousand dollar ticket um then there was the accuracy of designing a system could you actually design a system without going on on the roof and it turns out it's actually probably more accurate now with technology than it is to to make mistakes yourself physically there um, and then the last thing was subcontract. We had a, a sort of an almost uber like view which is well before we still used to ride in taxis um, that if you want to build a network of infrastructure to fulfill a 
hard asset business, it's easier and better and faster and ultimately better for the customer to have a network of installers who could install on the ground to do the last mile. And then, and actually still today, the majority of businesses are vertically integrated and they do that in-house, which is a very capital intensive way to grow a business. And being one of the many, one of the key challenges to profitability in residential solar is how do you fund that kind of thing when you're growing very fast? So our approach was to do that uh, with subcontractors and a network of great installers. So we had to prove three things, um, which was really the point of the seed capital in the first, I'd say, you know, two to three years of the business. And people were betting on you because you were a software company and you mentioned the founders yourself as a banker, Danny Activist, Alec, serial entrepreneur. But as a software company, where did the developer, the engineer talent come in to build the product? So it's actually one of those fortune, you know, you get luck both ways in business and life. And we just got very lucky. We bumped into a guy who actually was based in Sydney still. Um, who, when we put it out to tenders, like, this is what we want to do. We've called it the I quote. We want to build this thing. And not only did this individual say, yeah, I can do that, but he figured out the math of looking at multiple images of the same roof and figuring out the relative position of points of the roof, which gave you pitch, azimuth, all the software, CAD software. Like Microsoft hadn't figured out how to do this. They had 300 people up in Washington, we find out later. It was a He's just a really, really smart guy. Um, and he joined the team and he was on the team throughout the long, the, you know, the, the 10 year history at Sungevity. So he, he figured that out. So he's building the product with you and then you have the product. How are you getting your first customers? So, um, yeah, so first customer, we did a hilarious thing. We, we designed a thousand homes. I think it was Albany. Um, and one weekend we walked around Albany. California. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just up the road um, and handed out pictures of homes designed with solar. And we ran back to the office and we sat there waiting for the phone just to ring off the hook. And <laughs> and it was kind of quiet. In fact, it was entirely silent for the first like week and nothing happened, um, which is another lesson. Like, you know, be prepared for all that lovely enthusiasm to get sort of spat on and, and shaken up. And um, so, yeah, we, we didn't crack the nut day one. <laughs> But we eventually started getting some stories going and the, the media picked up on this kind of cool online tool. Um, Danny and Alec did a heroic job uh, building up the PR side and, and we got some great stories and that started to drive traffic. And there was a funny moment one day we thought the CRM had broken um, because it was unfortunately, you know, every now and then it did. And uh, the numbers of systems sold in our CRM just popped from zero to one without anyone speaking to a customer. And we're like, ah, geez, it broke again. And we looked and it was like, there's a real customer in there. <laughs> and uh, to this day, I think, I mean, I think it's the first system that was ever bought 100% online without human contact. And it was an octogenarian ex-army pilot. He just wanted to do the right thing. And he bought a system A for, you know, 14999 and... He was really happy. And so it was kind of a cool, cool way to kick off. That's awesome. Uh, as you're building this company, this, you were a first time entrepreneur. How did you know how to do all of this? Yes, I had no idea uh, at all. Um, the, yeah, we were very lucky. We had the team right at the beginning. We had great, great people who kind of had the, the lucky combination and obviously we tried to find great talent so it wasn't entirely luck but we were just we we had the right people in our ecosystem and they were able to join our team at the right time so we ended up with really really smart people who could do the pieces of the jigsaw that need to be built and then also we were sort of blessed by the mission orientation at the early stage it, the I'd say over half of the first 10 people we had in Sungevity had activist backgrounds. And, you know, most of them in that initial kernel of the team that we built. And I think what that became was uh, a culture of people that not only believed in the technology and the customer service, but were passionately motivated to, to make the company a success and to make solar a success, to get clean energy out there. So it was really from the beginning a, a huge team team effort. Was part of that team, did you have a board that was helpful or mentors or other founders that you could talk to about challenges that you were facing? Yeah. So we were chatting, I was chatting to some of the entrepreneurs just uh, in Powerhouse earlier. And I mentioned that um, it really evolves. So early on, you know, the board 
you know, board meetings, I think we probably had them. Um, they probably involved, you know, a meeting in the local uh, hostelry under the office. Uh, very informal. The, the priorities change. You start off with deep, deep focus on proving out your business theory, your product, your will customers pay? How much will they pay? Can this work? This strategy, this idea we've had. Um, and then it evolves to... Um, to talent and building a team of people who can execute a growth strategy. And, and then you start getting into these completely new challenges. So I never managed a team. Uh, I would imagine people would, I mean, I actually can, don't have to imagine. I recall people describing my management style as horrific. You know, you, you have to learn it. And I think one of the key lessons I took is because it evolves, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur through many stages of a business, you, you have to evolve yourself. You have to actively decide that you're going to try and change because, uh, you know, an ex-banker, analyst, BD guy from BP and some old U.S. and British investment banks has absolutely no, absolutely no experience in building teams, leading people, creating culture, creating systems, operating a business. So you have to learn really quick. Um, I definitely recommend to, to the entrepreneurs here that, you know, get a mentor uh, again, we talked about this earlier with some of your team, but learn from people who have done it before. It's the fastest way to develop those skills um, and avoid many of the mistakes that you're undoubtedly going to be exposed to. What was it like as you started to scale the business? Um, you went from a handful of employees to at one point, what was the the highest headcount of Centravity? Uh, just over a thousand. Employees. So what was it like as you're, as you're starting to scale? What was that like? Yes. Again, evolution. You know, when you're in a room, we were up just a, you know, a few miles from here in an office with 25, 30 people. You know them all by name, you know kind of what they're good at and what they need help with to build a team around the functions that need to be done. As soon as you get above that kind of size, it's about you know, putting teams and communication and infrastructure in place. And, and that was really the challenge through that whole growth period. And you know, you as soon as you get above direct ownership and responsibility of doing a task yourself, like that's the transition. And from there on in, it's about talent. You know, almost everything in business is about the people you're, you're working with and trying to achieve that goal you've set out for the team. And what was, as you're building the talent, what was in scaling, what was the peak of Sungevity's success? And what was it like being at that peak? Yeah, so we kind of, we felt that the peak was ahead of us always. There was never a moment when we said we just, you know, we just climaxed. Um, we are, you know, we had moments where we were sort of swayed by market share data and we sort of, you know, would, would celebrate, you know, being number two and a half point four in the U.S. market. Um, and that, you know, with hindsight, I think, and maybe this is a, uh, there's a lesson in here that, you know, make sure you're celebrating the right things as a team. You know, with hindsight, I think, celebrating those months where we broke even, albeit very briefly, um, and celebrating the team's achievements more would have been smarter. But I think at the time we were very, the industry has been, and we were very focused on growth. So those were some of the more important sort of celebrations. And they felt like the wins at the time. And at one point, speaking of wins, you had an acquisition offer that was, you tell me if it was a good one, but it seemed like a good one and you passed. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so we were talking about that. And I, I, I suppose I can say a little bit about it. We, um, yeah, so we were three years in and we had this great technology. We'd proven out those three things. We were approached um, by a large Asian uh, conglomerate and we said no interest whatsoever. We're going to 10x next year because we were just launching the solar lease. So the combination of not only getting easy access to the information all online, but now monthly pay. So that $40,000, $30,000 upfront cost goes away, um, which is also one of the great innovations that came out of you know, Sunrun and, and SolarCity and, and others. And that, when plugged into our online tool, was really powerful. So we were really excited about that. We said, no, we're not selling. We're going to 10x next year. Um, and they kept on just throwing stupid numbers at us. And so one, another lesson... Stupid, stupid meaning good numbers. Yeah, stupidly yeah. good. I think that might be a Scottish thing. Um, it's not. I just want to make okay, sure yeah, everyone... Just in case there's anyone who's wondering. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was crazy. And, and another lesson that I took from that is even if you don't want to sell, tell them you ain't selling. So whatever those ideas you've got, and if you're a buyer in the room, I apologize for making your life harder. But for all the entrepreneurs in the room, tell them you don't want to sell. 
Um, because if they want you, they will come back again and again and again, and it will get better and better. At least that was our experience. So we um, had a great, uh, we had a hilarious moment uh, with this company where we finally negotiated everything. It was done. We were out celebrating with them, you know, practicing our language in this Asian language, which if I tell you would make it obvious who they were. And we thought the deal was done. And it turned out that the, because it was over $100 million, three years in, we had $2.8 million of trailing 12-month revenue. It was sort of a big uh, number. We were over 100, which pushed it up to the family who owned the company. And the family were just about to fire the CEO, and the deal didn't happen. So, like, the vagaries of life are kind of crazy, um, and I think there's lessons in there about for entrepreneurs about what it means to be in business, stay in business, make sure you have opportunities, uh, recognize that things are going to be out of your control and are going to change things even when you expect them to play out like you know they should. Um, there's a lot of lessons in that, which we can cover at some point. Well, tell us, throughout that time, you were also raising capital from VCs, from strategics. Tell us about that process and especially lessons learned for entrepreneurs that are starting to engage with the venture community. Please note, I see some VCs in the room that I recognize. So choose your words wisely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got a lot of respect for all the, the venture capital community and our investors and what they achieved, not just for longevity, but what the funding of the community has done for all of these ideas that ultimately need to get to market. So we, we, were, um, we had some great investors. Our specific case was um, we were funded by initially by friends and family, but then by quite small mission-oriented venture capital. And I think that was very constructive. It was very in keeping with the culture of the business. We had a great board, um, a very supportive set of investors. I think two of the challenges we had, I think I'd say two of the mistakes that we made were that we did not ultimately get one big anchor tenant large check written to properly capitalize a business. I spent, you know, 90% of my time raising capital in the, the, the last few years of longevity, which is kind of alarming probably for many of you to hear, but that was the reality of how capital intensive this business was. Um, so I think there was a breakaway. We've always felt like there was a breakaway velocity that having a big balance sheet gets you better working capital terms, gets you better cost of capital project finance, gives you more confidence from your vendors and your customers, gets you better talent in that scale of the business. There was a bunch of positives that would have come from that that we never really achieved. Um, and the second sort of, I'd say, mistake is that on the board, and I'd encourage folk to at least think about this, is... Uh, for entrepreneurs, I think it's important to have diversity of operational history and experience um, so that you get your best chance possible to get exposure to people who've made mistakes before you make them. So similar to the mentor coach thing, uh, you know, having people who've built companies at that phase of growth you're going into, I think is incredibly valuable to have on the board as well. Um, we, we never really did that. Um, and then just lastly, I'd say, you know, on the capital raising side, we, uh, we raised a lot of money over 10 years. We never had that big, anchor, you know, the big balance sheet that we needed. We, uh, when we started the company, we did very specific, I, as the banker in the room, did all very, very specific analysis on the working capital in residential solar. We specifically went through every line item of the unit economics in Resi and said, Let's push the payment of those to the right-hand side of when we collect the cash. So we get paid by a customer at install. Let's take the marketing spend, which is massive, and pay it on a success basis to customers who refer and partners who give us leads. So we pay after we've been paid by the customer. We took the hardware and copied the Dell playbook and paid for the hardware after we'd received it on payment terms. And we had a network of installers who we paid post-install. So we'd taken all the working capital requirements out of the business in the Sanjevity business model. And that was what the asset light Dell business enabled. It should have enabled massive growth. So great. We did that. That was smart. What we didn't do was, was keep analyzing the working capital in business as we grew. We're growing so fast. Just managing growth was enormously challenging. And we didn't realize that when we switched on lease, did 10x the business. We did actually 10x the number of sales we made that year 
which we promised this acquirer. Um, but we didn't realize that the business became a bank. We became this capital raising machine as a technology customer facing company at its heart and culture. We suddenly had this, you know, this working capital cash requirement. Um, and that really became longevity for that next five years. And to sort of wind it forward to the last 12 months of Sungevity, we, we, uh, we met a partner, um, which was a, a financial entity that had raised $200 million in public capital money. And we were going to reverse into that in a reverse IPO. So that would mean $200 million of fresh cash into the business and Sungevity would go public. So very similar to, to an IPO structure, but reversing into the money all, that was already raised. And our big bet was that we were going to, you know, that was the capital that would ultimately get us that balance sheet. We had a set of investors that had agreed a valuation, um, which was a very good valuation. And it was based on the business model and the ability to take that technology and roll it out across multiple countries. So we had a, you know, a vision, a plan to take all the 10 years of lessons here in the US, Australia, Netherlands, and Belgium, which we covered from our European business, which was about 30% of our sales uh, in the last year, and roll it out across multiple countries. So it was very exciting, and it was nearly a reality. Um, and obviously, we were out on our roadshow when Trump got elected, surprise to the market. Any surprise is terrible for a deal, as I'm sure Wilson Sassini will, will share, um, that when it specifically created sector-specific risk, risk in extremis, um, that became a deal breaker for, for the company. And we were set up for that transaction. We were, you know, we were, you know, really planning on that growth plan and, and, and changing course from that was not a mathematical reality. Did you know when Trump was elected and it was announced, did you know in that moment that the deal wouldn't go through? Yeah. I mean, I, I spent the whole night trying to figure out how to persuade a market that this would be good for solar. And <laughs> joking apart, it's actually incredibly, like if you, if you look at the Republican mandate on energy and energy independence and all the things that matter to uh, the Republican Party, even go to some of the extreme elements of the Republican Party, solar is like the playbook. Local jobs, get rid of the subsidies, get rid of the the mindless bureaucracy, free up blue collar jobs, um, energy independence. Like I'm reading from the solar playbook here. And we as an industry created, as I'm sure all of you know, you know, 3x more jobs than the coal industry. The coal industry was in decline. Mathematically, the number of jobs that were available to be grown out there in the US community was solar. So it kind of made a lot of sense. But when you wake up in the morning and you're standing in front of an institution who thought they were signing up to a deal a few weeks ago and their portfolio, their screen has got, you know, sun run down 14% or 15%, whatever it was, and the solar, you know, the entire publicly traded solar sector already just in dire straits as reaction, you know, that was, that was too much for the deal. What happened after the deal didn't go through. So we tried to get capital into the business. Um, private investors similarly saw the risk as too high. And, um, you know, we, we basically didn't have time to change the entire strategy of the company and capital investments we committed to in the company. We just, we didn't have the time. Um, so we, we switched pretty quickly into the mode of how do we do absolutely the best thing for our stakeholders. Um, as an aside, it was obviously an incredibly challenging time personally and for the, the management, for the team who were in it with us, for everyone who's working on it, all the stakeholder group, the investors, everyone, um, suppliers, partners, you know, everyone was going to be affected. So we tried our absolute best night and day to do the best by those stakeholders and get the best outcome with what we had, which is a very tough, uh, you know, tough position. So we, um, we did have a, an investor who was keen to own the assets of the company. And in order to maximize the number of jobs that could be uh, maintained in the business and to ensure the most number of customers were looked after so that the solar industry didn't have a negative story that would hurt it um, to as best a degree possible, 
we found a home for it that was not a good outcome for a lot of the stakeholders, but looked after the most that we could. And, you know, the, the good news here is that Sungevity continues to operate. You know, I think we've seen many stories about Sungevity ended, Sungevity was in bankruptcy, end of story. No, not the case. So Sungevity in Europe is selling as many systems in Europe as we were last year. You know, it was 30% of the business. It's now as big as Sungevity USA was. It's, inc- it's doing incredibly well. It's owned by Engie, one of the largest utilities in uh, in the world and in Europe, and is thriving. Um, and Sungevity is now in the US still, you know, uh, in existence, and um, we hope doing very well. So, you know, it's a restructuring. It's really, really hard on all the stakeholders, but... Ultimately, the broader trends that are driving solar, I think, will be what we think about five, ten years from now. Yeah. How was it when you got this deal negotiated? It sounds like you didn't have a ton of control over the company and the decisions at that point. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, it's not a lot you can talk about the specifics because it's uh, just the nature of transaction has a lot of confidentiality. But yeah, the you lose control well before it happens because you're effectively transferring the assets and the running of the company. So a lot of the stuff that happened, the management team, myself, the old stakeholders just didn't control. It was out of our hands. So yeah, there's not a lot you can do about that. How was it not having control of the company at that point, having built it for the past 10 years? Tough. If you could call your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? Um, so we talked, to, uh, I think I've talked, we've talked, you've been listening, unfortunately. You'll get a chance to speak soon, um, I hope. Uh, I've talked about, about a lot of it. I think um, it's just a general lesson of learning. Like there's, It's not one thing. It's about um, recognizing your own weaknesses uh, it's about recognizing the importance of as quickly as possible getting the best talent around you to execute whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, again, it, it just comes down to people. And, um, and I think t- combining that with your instincts, like trusting your instincts. I think you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are going to get a lot of advice from thousands of different places. Like pick your mentors and pick them well and trust your instinct. Like people are going to tell you, really smart people are going to tell you, they're going to give you the wrong advice. And, you know, I, I actually look back at some of my most, I think some of the smartest people I've ever met who, when I decided to start this, you know, online solar company said, you're crazy. No one is going to buy solar online. We sold 25,000 customers, you know, $20,000 systems and they had a net promoter score that was as high as Apple and Amazon because we were militantly focused on customer experience. Like we, 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 we showed that it could be done. And so, yeah, when you have an idea, I think one of the biggest lessons that I tell my early self is, you know, believe it, run with it, get smart people around you, but ultimately, you know, go with your gut. What was the hardest lesson to learn? Uh, the... I mean, it was just that the hardest was the, the you know, the, the end of the longevity and that shape and form. Uh, so, you know, the lesson of try and balance risk taking and growth with conservatism. I think that as human beings and certainly myself, but I think this is a trait of most humans, we underestimate the extent of risk that exists in the universe. So... You know, the risk that I hear from so many entrepreneurs, of, as you've introduced me to some, and I've just been, I've done a, a little five month world tour of solar around the world and meeting people. And it, people are always concerned that their business is going to be overtaken by the other ideas around the room. When 80, 90% of businesses don't make it, the bigger concern is really making sure your business does. Uh, and I think people underestimate the relative balance of risk there. And just the uncertainty, you know, had we gone public, you know, a week earlier, had the the family of a large conglomerate not been firing the CEO, these would have been massively different outcomes for our shareholders and our partners. And really, you just got to be in it, fighting the fight and making sure those opportunities, when they come, you, you really, you know, 
you try and get them done. But recognize the risk is big out there is, is I think, a lesson. Cool. We're going to move into our high-voltage round. You this is the, yeah, this is the hard bit. This is the hard bit. You haven't seen these questions. Question one, what is your spirit animal? <laughs> that's a, can I say that's a ridiculous question? <laughs> um, I want to come up with something really cool, but I can't. Uh, I just love dolphins. Is that bad? They're really pretty, and they're efficient in the water, which is really nice. And I love water. But they go the way they go through the water. Great. <laughs> what have you found consistently most inspiring? Uh, people, uh, talent, the, and, and the people I've worked with at the, the, the root of the business, not the, you know, I think I've, there's plenty of inspiring leaders, big tech geniuses and all, you know, all the, in the world you can, you can be inspired by, but ultimately you look at what was achieved by a group of typically very young people doing things for the first time working as a team, solving big problems, and the culture that was created around that and the successes they achieved was the most inspiring and powerful thing in the whole experience. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I'd be in residential solar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Globally, I think if I was starting a career like tomorrow, I think the U.S. just to offer a little industry thought if I may the the I've just been traveling for five five months and residential solar is basically a dollar or what everywhere in the world except here where it's three dollars and fifty cents it's criminal and it's all regulatory policy driven the panels are the same the cost of capital is pretty much the same the cost of everything is pretty much the same these are structural issues that the U.S. residential solar market has to overcome that makes it incredibly just inherently hard for the Sunjevities and Sunruns and Soul Cities and Vivents and Ferengos and all these great companies with great people and cultures and ideas and parts of the solution, it just makes it so hard to thrive because we have to deal with permitting and tariffs and all the risk that that creates for capital and investment and time for customers to wait to get an asset, which drives the acquisition cost higher because structurally you can't tell your friend and just make it happen like you do everywhere else in the world. So, you know, it's a dollar or what? Every, I mean, you know, maybe it's a dollar thirty in some countries, but we're talking about, you know, sub ten cent per kilowatt hour residential solar, pretty much the world over without subsidy. For people who've been in solar for twenty five years, like to have achieved that, to have a group of, you know, we're not, we're talking thousands of people, not hundreds of thousands of people have delivered that. Like that is insane. And so the government, the regulation needs to get out the way in this country, and it will be the largest solar economy in the world, probably. And so I'm convinced still that'll happen, but it's going to take policy change. Um, Elsewhere in the world, with the overlay of battery cost reduction, which is now meaning solar plus storage is an economic proposition for literally billions of people in the world today without subsidy. And I was guilty, so I'll give an admission. Alec and I, and Alec, Danny and I are still, you know, we're... They're my god, uh, kids, godparents, all that good stuff. We're, we, we've been through the wars together and we, we love to have a good chat. We had a moment five months ago where we were like just depressed about solar. We were kind of like, like, you know, is this just, do we get it wrong? And you got to get out of the country. I encourage you to either get on a plane anywhere else in the world or contact your overseas friends and ask them about the fundamental economics of solar, if indeed they have those conversations, because most people don't, but um, <laughs> just, just go and explore. The rest of the world, solar is going crazy, and it will go through the roof because the economics of battery now with the economics of solar in combination are the most powerful trend in the energy industry, which is the largest sector of the world economy. It is the most powerful thing to be a part of. And this, I think, and everything I've seen is the biggest innovation hub uh, so being a part of that at that ground level and solving the last remaining problems that have been given to us today, I think is the most exciting place to be for a career for anyone at this time. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They don't understand risk. My biggest regret is... I didn't go public a week earlier. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> you want to um, elaborate? We, yeah, I mean, just, you know, there was uh, the chair of our board, Rob Davenport, who was a great coach and mentor to me over the last, you know, the last five years, I think, sum, summarized a great point for entrepreneurs, which is, he's a, you know, an Oakland fella. He, he's, he said that if you, like the, the purpose of businesses at this stage, because risk is so prevalent, is to stay alive long enough to just be there when those opportunities happen. So there's a, there's a skill, and I'm not even sure I'm answering the question here, but I'll just make a point that's hopefully useful to the entrepreneurs in the room, which is there is a skill and a talent to not stepping on the gas every second of the day on the growth side, to staying alive, proving the unit economics of your product or your service and the working capital of that at the right scale. And when the time comes you're going to place a bet and you're going to hit the growth button, but you'll know how much money you need because you know your working capital. You'll know how much, you'll know that it's profitable when you grow because you've done the detailed analysis of every line item of your variable costs and your revenue line. So just that inherent conservatism. As entrepreneurs, I think the, the most wonderful thing about the people in this room and the people in our community is you're basically saying and doing this, you know, I'm going to go and do it anyway, despite the risk profile. You can, you can all earn money much easier than being an entrepreneur in clean tech. You're actively saying, I'm going to do this anyway, even though I understand the risks. That means you've got drive, you're inspired, and you're going to inspire other people, and you're a great person, in my book. The trick is maintaining that optimism and that drive with this balance of timing your run right. And that is something that you know, no single person, certainly not me, has the answer to. But I think spending time thinking about that for your business uh, would be something that increases massively your probability of success. And finish these last two sentences for me. Success is? Having a positive impact on the world. I'm most proud of? The team we built. Great. Please join me in giving a round of applause to Andrew Birch. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here and join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.